Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, I'm gardening with Sarah Raven. She's been writing about gardening for 25 years for The Telegraph as well as other publications and has seen massive changes in how our gardens grow. For anyone interested in food and the planet, growing, even if it's just a few herbs on the windowsill, is a no-brainer. Her latest book, A Year Full of Veg, gets to the heart of that relationship and tells us how to grow our own kitchen garden easily. She began by telling me the most important theme for her in this book. Uh, cut and come again, without doubt. So um, I, I just feel uh, the whole sort of slightly more old-fashioned allotment uh, philosophy of growing veg is all very well when you've got lots of time and perhaps lots of space, as you tend to have on an allotment. But when you're in the sort of life like we often are, um, with city gardens, window ledges, uh, doorsteps, and that's what most people are, that's their growing space. I just think the thing of being able to go and harvest on a Monday, and if you pick them right, going back on the Friday and be able to pick from the same plant, rather than like a carrot or a potato, once you've dug it up, you've dug it up and that's it. So for me, the cut and come again thing is just absolutely front and foremost. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wouldn't normally talk about gardening on cooking the books um, because yeah. it's about food and identity and it's about resilience skills and it's about saving the planet, all of which is in your book, which is why we're talking about it. And it is about uh, growing your own food so that you can connect with the land as well. What are the big uh, barriers to growing your own food? I think it's the thing of a little and often. And so I think for busy people like you and me, it, it, it feels quite a kind of commitment, one extra commitment too many, really, that you do need to water and, you know, you regularly need to sow things. But you can get around that. And, I, I mean, I really hope I talk about that quite a lot in the book, which is, again, with the herbs particularly. I mean, my current number one favourite is probably flat-leaf parsley because you only need to sow it twice a year. You can have it in pots. You really, really don't have to water it. I mean, ideally you do in the summer months, but you don't have to. And by then just picking the outer leaves, the heart of the plant just grows out and produces more. And for me, I mean, I probably eat parsley four or five times a week here in different things. And I would say that would be my absolute number one plant that, that everybody should grow because it's like it turns um, quite dull food into something really delicious. You know, whether it's a salsa verde or a parsley sauce or adding it into a French dressing or into a leaf salad or whatever. Um, so for me, flat leaf parsley is, is just the texture of it is so much tenderer than our curly leaf parsley, which more of us tend to grow. Yeah, I just I love it. Well, I mean, the, the book actually takes us through the year and it's beautiful weather today. By the end of the week, it's yeah. going to be very mild and rainy. And that's what our British winters are now. Um, yeah. What really surprised me is that you start in January and February talking about winter salads. And, and actually, winter salads are your first food moment. Yeah, yeah. You really, I mean, that was the thing um, that, that I think really hooked me into this, actually, was that um, I went to have um, dinner with Christopher Lloyd, who I don't know if you know, but he's a famous gardener who's, who's now dead, but um, has this wonderful, very famous garden about half an hour from me here um, at Great Dixter. And when we first moved here, he had been a friend of my dad's. He invited uh, me and Adam, my husband, over to dinner 
And um, one, the, I, we became great friends, but one of the first dinners that I had there, um, he served a salad in February with 16 different leaves in it, all picked from the garden kind of half an hour or an hour before. Um, and I was just blown away by that, that there are so many things that are actually much harder than we think. And they may hail from the uplands in, in um, Japan, uh, you know, sometimes just poking out from under snow. And since I sort of got uh, inspired by that, we've done trialling for the last 25 years of different varieties of mustards, different varieties of rocket, mitzunas. Uh, you know, there are just so many different cut-and-come-again salad leaves, which tend to hail, um, they tend to be Chinese or Japanese-Asian, um, sort of slightly peppery, slightly brassicary flavours. But, you know, rocket is, of course, a Mediterranean wildflower, um, and that gives you that real pepperiness. But these are all plants that genuinely prefer it cold, grey and wet, not hot, dry and sunny. And, and I, that's the thing that I think a lot of us don't realise. It's actually easier to grow veg through the winter and the spring than it is through the summer because you don't need to water because the heavens do it for you. And uh, you don't get pests like flea beetle is a real pesky little beetle that hops like a flea that peppers all rocket leaves and all the brassicas. It's in the news at the moment, actually, because of the great contention of, of wiping it out with insecticides. But um, that is around from April to August, but not from August till April. Mm. So, you know, the heavens are watering. You don't get the pests and diseases. The slugs aren't active yet. It's such a great time to grow veg. A total, total revelation. I think that one of the, the, the barriers to getting involved in gardening is the idea that people don't have a lot of space to do that. And you do yeah. talk about that. Um, over the 25 years you've been writing about it, you will have covered the vertical farming. You will have used, talked about seed and roof planting. Um, you would have talked yes. about the explosion of pot planting as well as balcony planting. And you say yourself that when you lived in, in in London you you planted yeah. on your own balcony and your own windowsill I mean tell yeah. me a little about how much easier it is now in terms of uh, the ideas that are that, that are, are passed around but also the way that the industry is kind of responding to to, to, yeah. to the different nuances of planting in different places well you know I think um, it's it's always quite an amazing fact that 90% of us are going to be of us humans in Britain are going to be living in either towns, cities or villages um, or already are or will be in the next 10 years. And so to have sort of rolling acres is, is just not realistic. And actually, really sadly, having an allotment is not particularly realistic in a city because there's such long uh, waiting lists mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's because I'm now in, um, I was 60 about two weeks ago. Happy and birthday. I have, thank you. Right behind have, you. <laughs> I have two grown-up daughters who live in London and they've been brought up being able to just walk outside and pick things and um, I'm not sure they miss it but it's certainly a strand in their life and it's really made me think uh, about what are the things that you really are worth growing in like a water trough. I'm a real fan of those metal water troughs that you can get from any old farm shop because they're deep and they're long and they're like a raised bed, but you don't have to make mm -hmm. anything. You can just fill it with compost. They've already got the drainage in where, of course, mm -hmm. the tap is for the animal 
uh, the water trough. Um, so they're, they're really brilliant. And the thing about bigger pots and containers, you can put them on your balcony or on your doorstep or if you've got a tiny yard, um, and they hold much more moisture and much more nutrition. So rather than lots of little pots, which is what people tend to do, or little diddly uh, window boxes, which are super high maintenance, they dry out, they need feeding, they need fertilising, those combined with, uh, for instance, a Gardena irrigation system, if you can just have it going out the kitchen window or if you can get it plumbed in, then you're done and dusted. And that's the thing. So then you've got a good access to fertility in a deeper, um, more compost, um, and you've got a water system. And putting it on for two minutes a day from May until the end of August, that's all you need to do, you know. And for me, just growing things, something like Swiss chard, which is a cut-and-come-again leaf, or one of the kales. Um, I mean, I love red Russian kale because it, it used to be called Kostya's kale because it would get people through the hungry gap, uh, which, of course, is March, April mm. and May, weirdly, before uh, this year's crops really get going. Uh, so things like that, or the herbs... So as I've already mentioned, flat leaf parsley, but also I'm, I'm crazy about chervil, totally hardy for this time of year. So we had a frost here last night. I, I went out and picked some chervil for a salsa verde this morning. Absolutely hasn't battered an eyelid, completely doesn't matter. Um, and, and then I, I'm also crazy about coriander, much better so now rather than in the hot, dry months. So you sow it in February, March rather than April or May. Mm-hmm. But certainly May or June because it bolts immediately. But anyway, so so I do think people, you know, all of us um, educators in gardening. I mean, I, I teach gardening and cookery, but I teach gardening a lot. And the, the, the sort of people who are gardening, particularly since COVID, are younger and have less space. And mm. you can't ignore that. You can't just assume that people have time, space and money. Yeah. Um, and so these sorts of veg that are cut and come again will give you... Um, all that you need really even if you've just got a balcony yeah you say like don't bother with cauliflower and cabbage for example because no. you know it's hard to to grow those things and other people do them perfectly well so buy do them. what you can do buy them and concentrate absolutely. on the things that you absolutely can because i think that it is about sort of confidence isn't it i mean i have lots of yeah. herbs now since talking to mark diacono last year um, oh yeah great I, I just put loads of pl- um herbs in pots and it feels great being able to constantly go to my balcony yeah. and and actually just feed my family you Mm. know over the last couple of decades it it feels like it has completely ravaged the the, not just the land but the sensibility of land use yeah have you seen that changing back as we're talking more and more about climate change and the and the and the importance of getting pollinators and around flowers are people now reversing those kind of trends definitely some (laughs) so i would say uh, absolutely trailblazers are completely doing that and uh, on their shirt tails um an increasing number of people we've still got a long way to go um and unfortunately um urban development whether it be a a new small town or uh, Mm. you know an extension to a village unfortunately quite a lot of those you do just see concrete brick concrete brick um and that is not great and um and it is very retrograde very very old-fashioned and the 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 um the huge um 
container ship style um, uh, kind of politics of that whole way of being. It just takes a long time to turn. But certainly where I live, um, you know, I live in the country, but, you know, in lots of villages around here, Mm. absolutely uh, you see people increasingly interested in hedges, which are incredibly Mm. important. I mean, that's not to do Mm. with the edibles, but... um, but Well, it is ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is because it is for the pollinators um, and for birds. I mean, the thing that I'm increasingly uh, researching and getting excited about is garden birds and what we can do in our gardens mm. um, in any of our outdoor spaces to help them. And, of course, they then help eat the slugs and the snails and that becomes a natural way of controlling pests. So that becomes like this wonderful virtuous circle. And that's how we garden here is is absolutely organic, but much more demanding than organic. It's got to really look at the whole thing as a closed a unit of, of biodiversity health and kind of happiness for all really well exactly and i think that that's the most important thing that i took from the book again going back to the people who are moving into those developments uh, yeah. or have already moved into those places with already concreted yeah. um, car parks what can they do obviously you know it takes a lot to take up a, a load of concrete a lot of people yeah. wouldn't be able to do that yeah. anyway yeah. what if you're living in rented accommodation what can they do to bring those pollinators in at least so i really do going back i'm afraid to the water trough so they you know they they cost 90 quid which isn't nothing at all but you've got them for life literally for life or you can try and get them secondhand on ebay or something and and the great thing is that there you have a a very heavy but transportable container Mm. and so you can take it when you move um you know if you're in rented accommodation and it gives you the bulk of soil or compost to really grow things healthily without being massively high maintenance so i would just fill your whole rather than having the car on that area just fill it with containers old dolly tubs old water troughs old zinc buckets you know whatever and fill them some with veg and some with plants for the pollinators and uh, you know then you if you've got something that's insect pollinated which of course most of our vegetables are so whether it beans or tomatoes they're all pollinated by bees um, you're you're upping your produce from your plot as well as helping out the pollinators. So it's helping you and helping them. Yeah, or have long, thin raised beds made from sleepers. Ex- I mean, exactly. And, and then you can still have your car there, can't yeah. you? Yeah, um, yeah. So go, go into your, um, your second food moment now. Um, tomatoes. Now, I've had to move my tomatoes up on my balcony because um, they just didn't love the soil. I live in East Sussex too and you know the kind of soil that we have around here. I am very clay. Yes. Um, tomatoes hate hate the ground around here. Yeah. Um, they love pots. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you've chosen some some of Russian tomatoes to talk about and this is yes. something that comes out of your book. You are you know, growing a lot of uh, fruit and vegetables from different climes. Now, yeah. how does that fit into the virtuous circle of sustainability? And and also, what does it do for our gut to grow food uh, from different places? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, as I'm sure you know, the more different um, food groups um, and, and um, edible plants that we can eat in our diet from one day to the next has a huge beneficial effect on, yeah. on our gut flora. And so I'm a great, great believer in um, polychrome uh, tomatoes. 
And so we grow black varieties, green varieties, orange, yellow, uh, as well as the the standard reds. And um, I remember uh, way before anyone else was growing anything other than red tomatoes in this country, perhaps the odd yellow, I walked into a market in St. Petersburg, which is obviously um, not a, a fashionable thing to talk about currently. But um, great friends of us were living in Russia and um, they knew I was already a vegetable fanatic and they took me to the vegetable market there. And I was completely, totally amazed by... It felt like I was walking through Bologna market, you know, a southern Italian market, because it was in August and the whole place was heaving with huge barrows of tomatoes, but not mainly reds. They were mainly black varieties. And mm. the thing that they have is they have uh, the, the, um, the pigment called anthocyanin, which is the antioxidant that we're also obsessed by people of our age because uh, anthocyanin is incredibly good for brain health and it's what's in blueberries and uh mm. and 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 black currants actually and and blackberries but it's it's that pigment mixed with the red pigment which is lycopene in red tomatoes that gives you this very strange colored tomato and my children used to say oh i don't like the look of that mum. it looks like a bruise and weirdly it's kind of greeny blacky reddy sort of strange bluey purple color and they are super packed with antioxidant uh because they've got that double dose of of um of pigments and they are absolutely delicious so my favorite variety in the world is uh this one called noir de crime uh, or black crim and it's from the crimea originally and and uh, one sort of thinks, oh gosh, by growing foreign plants, is that still good for our pollinators? Well, actually, they're not racist. <laughs> and our bees are perfectly happy eating the pollen and the nectar of 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 a um, of any nationality of tomato. And in fact, a huge number of tomatoes have been bred in the Czech Republic at the moment. And they have a strain there that has particularly good blight resistance. And so quite a lot of the genetics are being brought in from these varieties. There's one called Stupis Polrane, and that has done very, very well and doesn't get blight in, in outside in the garden here. So, yeah, I, I think um, tomatoes are just, you, you can talk around the world in tomatoes, in my view. Yeah, and incredibly easy to grow. I mean, if you chose just one thing, you don't have to have a big space because, of course, they're climbers. Yeah. Um, so they can you can put them out on a little balcony or just outside your your back door can't you and they will climb um and they are prolific aren't they they really are bountiful yeah um watching i mean you mentioned bees there your third food moment is about slowing down and watching and grazing and, and and testing things but I noticed that you say that bumblebees are the gardener's best friends and you say they're very thorough and they pollinate every flower. As you're slowing down and watching, which is one of the joys of gardening, yeah. um, and the, probably the reason why I don't do it very well, Okay, um, <laughs> is that noticing what kind of bees are attracted? Yes. Why do yes. you think bumblebees are so useful? I think because um, they're, they're why we love them and why we think they're so sweet is because they're sort of slightly cumbersome, sort of bumbly sort of things. And actually, by being that mass, um, they will knock the pollen, particularly, for instance, in something like tomatoes, as they're pollinating a, a, a truss higher up, 
they're, literally their bulk makes them very effective of knocking the pollen from the top layer down to the bottom layer so you get better pollination. So it seems that they are just better pollinators than something like a hoverfly, which are in fact also incredibly impo- important pollinators. Um, and actually are better than a butterfly because they, they just as they're feeding, they're just displacing. They're feeding on the nectar, but they're displacing the pollen to below. And so there are so many of our mainstream plants um, that are bumblebee pollinated primarily. Uh, you know, I've already mentioned runner beans, but also all the French beans, uh, all the all the all the fruiting things, aubergines, chilies, tomatoes are, of course, as well. Uh, in fact, the one thing perhaps that isn't that grows outside commonly is sweet corn because that's uh, that's wind pollinated. But anything sort of fruiting, like a cucumber, also is is pollinated yeah. primarily by bees, but also particularly effectively by bumblebees. And so we're always thinking of using them as our friends and and planting things specifically for them. So we actually, here, we plant as a companion um, the Tagetes family, the Mexican marigold or African marigold family, because they've been proven to be in the top five um, best plants for nectar for bees. And so they're um, feeding on your your Tagetes. They also repel aphids. So you've got, you get into this very, very beneficial cycle um, so everything is getting pollinated. You get more harvest, but also you keep things healthier. Don't marigolds have a natural antibiotic as well? Well, they, yeah, I mean, it, it's not quite known. That calendulas do, yes. the yeah, the the English marigold. But the tadgetes, not so much. But yes, exactly right. They, um, they have calendula cream. So we should be planting yeah. marigolds so that the bees pick up the antibiotic qualities and then pollinate with that. So they are basically sort of giving. making the plants yeah. healthier. They are literally yeah. giving yeah. health. Yeah. I mean, un- unproven, I'd say, but a very nice supposition. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Your fourth food moment is rhubarb. Um, I love the fact that you take us back in time to the way the Victorians gardened, bringing an idea of beauty, of aesthetics and utility in a garden. It's very much what you do, isn't it? Especially with your companion planting as well. But Mm. rhubarb feels like um, something out of a different time that is also very modern. The forced rhubarb has only really kind of come back in the yeah, last 10 yeah. years, hasn't it? Tell us the, the yeah. story of that. Gosh, there are so many stories about rhubarb. So the first is that it's used as a marker um, by archaeologists um, in where the, the clearances happened on the west coast and north of Scotland. Um, and there, uh, villages, whole villages were raised to the ground, but archaeologists can see where perhaps they were, where there is a, a crown of rhubarb. And that is a marker that there was habitation there, you know, in, in the um, 18th, 19th century. And so it, amazing stories um, surrounding that, um, where I holiday on the west coast of Scotland. But also the Chelsea Physic Garden, um, they were doing some building work. And I think this was sort of 1850, 1860, but I can't exactly remember the date. And some builders just basically dumped a whole lot of kind of builder's rubble over some crowns of rhubarb. And there it was being grown at the Chelsea Physic Garden as a medicinal plant because it is incredibly good for the gut and things. Um, but it was only used medicinally. And then where it had been blanched by the builder's rubble, when they took all the builder's rubble away, they saw these bright pink stems. 
which somebody tried them and actually they weren't too tart and they were very tender. And that is the where we all learned about forcing rhubarb from this sort of chance experiment, basically, at the Chelsea Physic. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you don't need so much sugar with it. Um, when it's forced in that way. And I had the most wonderful opportunity with the photographer I worked with and have for 25 years, Jonathan Buckley. And we went up to do a piece for the Telegraph um, in the rhubarb triangle. And there they grow, um, I mean, incredible, like many, many, many hundreds of crowns are lifted of rhubarb, are lifted from the fields and put in these dark Nissen huts, literally just plonked on the ground. And you only pick by candlelight because as soon as light gets in they go green they go tougher and they go less sweet so they have to keep um you know just the harvesting by candlelight and it's the most extraordinary beautiful sight but also the sound of it is really i mean i will never forget it because you hear it's growing so quickly in march and april that you hear a creak as the stems are literally pushing up and growing and, and pushing wow. through that sort of weird apical um, leaf as, as, they, as they push up and, and grow to be harvested. And uh, so the combination of seeing these people picking only by candlelight and, and this sound, and of course this, that slightly um, acrid smell of rhubarb, which I adore, um, is, is I think one of the great food moments of my life really is just seeing these, these not acres, but many, many, many hundreds of crowns grown in that way. Could we be self-sufficient, do you think, or almost self-sufficient? I'm aware that, you know, a lot of us now get veg boxes because we want to be good to the planet. We want to, you know, be good to our gut. And so we buy things that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily have bought uh, in a a supermarket, for example. Um, Can we grow most of those vegetables that we get in in the average food box ourselves? We can. We really can. It's just the thing that you do need more space if you're not growing cut and come again. So all those sort of roots, potatoes, carrots, celeriac, which are, you know, so fashionable at the moment, and yeah. similarly cauliflowers, cabbages, they, they need a long time in the ground before you get the harvest. Whereas the salad leaves and the herbs and the leafy greens uh, really own, only need to be, you can be picking them from three to four weeks from sowing with some varieties. So that's the thing is it's all about space, but you absolutely can be self-sufficient um, and incredibly healthier in all ways, in your mind, in your body and in your gut. Um, so I think, you know, just, it, there are so many good reasons to do it. But, um, you know, the, the scale of, of so many of us living in this country now makes it a little difficult for everybody to do that. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Fugilly Smith and on Substack where you'll find a little extra bites to accompany the episode each week. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I'll see you next week.